If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. Yeah, that's exactly what we should do. Run him up and fill him in. Then why don't you? The kids don't want it. They don't skate, they don't score, they don't hit, they don't fight, they float. They don't love to win. They don't hate to lose. Spinning, spinning, who's he going to go after? The puck drops and Bogdartner goes right to King Blackenbill. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. This is Coliseum Chronicles The Penalty Box, your source for Islanders Enforcer Talk, proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Joe Lazito, and welcome to episode 145. Uh, this is the one time a year where we get a little serious here, and of course when I say we... I mean me. I don't know why I do that. This is a one-man operation. I know that's probably shocking to you because of how amazing the production is of this show, but it's true. This is indeed a one-man operation. But as I started to say, uh, the one time a year that I'll get serious on the show is today, and I'll tell you why in a few moments. But first, if you're on social media, whether it's Twitter, X, Facebook, or Instagram. Links to the accounts for this show are in the show notes of this very episode, so make sure you click on those links and let's connect. I can't connect with you. I don't know who's on the other end of this uh, microphone here, so I don't know who you are, but let's connect, and uh, you know, especially if you're a content creator and we can help each other out, that's fine. If you enjoy the content here, definitely uh, let's connect on one of those platforms. I am way more active on Twitter 
than I am on Facebook and Instagram combined. So uh, I know I get some messages on Facebook. I actually haven't checked in a while. And I feel bad because a lot of times people will message me and I don't get back for like a month, month and a half. I'm on Facebook and Instagram strictly to promote this show. But if it's something you would like to get in touch with me about uh, or send me a message or suggestion or whatever, definitely your best bet is to do it over Twitter. I'm way more active there than on the other two. Also, if you have an art project that needs to get done by someone touched by the hand of God when it comes to art, look no further than mighty Joe Marisich, the graphics joker himself. If you'd like to get in touch with Joe on Twitter, it's at GraphicsJoker, or you can get in touch with him via LoudEgg.com. Joe is the local Long Island artist who designed the logo for this program, and he absolutely does amazing work. As I've said a million times, if you're an Islanders fan, a Jets fan, a Mets fan, his work has uh, definitely appeared across your timeline on social media, especially Twitter. Also, if you're a fan of sports radio, I know he, I believe, is a big fan of uh, the Michael K show, so he does some tunes of them. He's just an all-around talented artist and an all-around great guy. And if you're an Islander fan specifically, Joe illustrated the book called Islanders A to Z. It is a children's book that brings you through the history of the New York Islanders and some of the big highlights. And Joe does amazing work. So you don't have to be a child to appreciate the artwork. I would suggest getting a copy for yourself. And that link also is in the show notes of this very episode. As I said, I am a proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network. I am on the original content side, but if you have a favorite team and you'd like to follow their show, definitely check out the website because some teams have more than one program, and I think the Islanders may be one of them. Uh, but as I said, I'm on the original content side, content side with the OG from Saskatchewan, Darren, who might be on a plane right now to Vegas. His annual two-week journey to Sin City. But Darren, the trooper that he is, he left us with an episode today. I listened to it earlier. That was episode 361. Solo episode, some random thoughts from Darren. I listened to it this morning on my way to work, and uh, it's been a long day. So I can't really remember specifics. I know he gets into the whole Ottawa-Toronto thing and um, Ryan Reeves. I think I'm going to listen to it again. But episode 360, he interviewed Brock from Red Hot Hockey on Twitter. He runs the Victoria Salsa Twitter page. Good guy. uh, Very good page to follow. uh, Well, I guess account. Uh, Twitter account to follow. Uh, He's very knowledgeable about Victoria hockey history. And... um, Yeah, after they have their interview, he does the 10 not-so-rapid-fire questions. And, um, Brock, you hurt me. You hurt me bad. I'm just kidding. Uh, No, I can absolutely see, uh, and I'm not going to say what Brock said, but, Brock, if you're listening, I totally get it. And uh, and no hard feelings. I'm not coming after you. You know, you're you're probably too young for me, but... uh, you know, maybe you'll teach me a lesson, but uh, but definitely it was good to hear Brock. It's always fun that Darren has these people on that, you know, it seems like a lot of them 
we follow each other on social media, but you don't really know the person. And then Darren has them on. And even if it's an hour, hour and a half interview, you kind of get a feel for them. And they're all, everyone's a good guy, you know, Brock's a good guy and everything. And I really enjoyed that episode, but um, definitely check out the back catalog as well. Darren's been at this for a very long time, 361 episodes strong. So I believe while Darren's at Vegas, we're going to get an episode uh, what's uh, Wednesday and an episode the following Wednesday. He will not regale us with any uh, episode on Sunday, which is a little bit of a disappointment, but that's just because I'm selfish. And um, and I love waking up to the melodic tones of Darren's voice on my Sunday mornings. But guys, a trooper, uh, you know, I'm going away a little bit in March and uh, I'm hoping that I'll have some content for you there. But uh, but besides that, check out the Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel as well. Uh, all the fight. I mean, <laughs> I I keep saying it. As I've said before, if you've watched the hockey fight on YouTube, chances are it's on the Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel. So uh, definitely give that a listen. Uh, listen to the show. Give the look to the. I'm all over the place right now. <laughs> Very, like I said, very professional outfit I have here. So let's try this again. Give a listen to the back catalog of the podcast and definitely watch some fights on the Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel and like and subscribe and all that good stuff. And one thing that Darren always says in his uh, in his chats that I don't and I should, uh, please, if you can give us a review, even if it's just a star rating or review, please download the episodes. That's how we get paid. Um, also, uh, what was I about to say? This is early onset dementia folks. I'm 53 with early onset dementia, but whether I don't have a YouTube channel, but for guys like Darren and Alec and Jordan, they have YouTube channels. So if you subscribe and they get a lot of subscribers, and I believe it's also like based, uh, maybe they're able to monetize their channel. I don't know YouTube. But if it's any content creator that you like, definitely subscribe to whatever you can, like whatever you can, download whatever you can. It helps us out tremendously, and it really doesn't take much effort. So it's just something you can do to help out people who create content that you like. Uh, and I, the aforementioned Alec from the Five for Fighting podcast. Alec is uh, settling down in Tennessee so hopefully once he gets settled down, we'll get some new content on the show. And um, again, check out his YouTube channel. Check out the back catalog of the Five for Fighting podcast, as well as Five and a Game with Jordan. Jordan works out west in Calgary, I believe. Now, and he lives in Cape Breton. And from what Darren says, I think they just got a shit ton of snow in Cape Breton. So I'm hoping to hear from these two young men soon. Uh, I really enjoy their content. I enjoy their passion uh, for their ages. Most people their age, they don't share the same passion for the physical game. So it's actually, I don't know if either of them would be a breath of fresh air, but they're a breath of fresh air. It, it's good to it's good to see some youngsters taking uh, their love for hockey fights and the violent aspect of the game to the airwaves and, uh, you know, kudos to both of them. Just a few things. Uh, I want to thank everybody for the kind words and comments and messages I got about the Steve McLaren trilogy. None, none of that happens without Steve. And I said it a bunch of times during the three parts, uh, we scheduled and rescheduled 
to record multiple times. And I cannot thank Steve enough because he hung in there with me. I've said it already. It's it's a lot more fun. And it kind of gets you revved up a little bit when you have a guest who you know is interested. And Steve was 100 miles an hour on this. He was so into it. And I think it showed. He was He was a tremendous guest. And I want to thank Steve. And I want to thank everybody who sent along messages. It really does mean a lot, folks. I got to tell you, I got a nice message today uh, through a mutual friend, um, Jeff in Peterborough. Really want to thank you for the kind words. And uh, it means a lot. It, it always means a lot to know that I'm not just talking to myself. So uh, the compliments are really great. The kind words are great. The reviews are great. I know my station in the podcast world. I know I'm the mom and pop shop. I know that uh, I don't have Bissonette and Joe Rogan looking over their shoulder, and that's okay with me. It really is. I know I know what I do, and I don't think I'm good at many things in life, but I think I'm pretty good at this. I enjoy the research, and I enjoy bringing you guys quality interviews. And um, every now and then when you get some feedback, it really means a lot. So thank you, everybody, for the kind words, and uh, we'll just keep plugging away here. Today was the stadium series, the uh, conclusion of the stadium series. We had New Jersey and Philly last night, and we had the Islanders and Rangers today. Did not go the Islanders' way. Um, Yeah, I'm not one to blame the officiating, and I I won't today. I mean, honestly, here's where I'll blame them, and it's not really blaming them. I understand why they make the calls that they do. I just miss the old way of doing things where you don't have to call every single fucking penalty. Just let the guys play. Like, seriously, let these fucking guys play. They're grown men. But it's probably not on the individual officials. It's probably on the league. They want them to call everything because power plays you know, maybe mean goals, goals mean highlights, highlights probably mean more money. So it's not really the stripes fault. I guess it's just, I just missed the way it used to be, but that's, that's not just an officiating thing. Um, I, yeah, as far as the Islanders go, uh, boy, there is one guy on defense that just loves taking penalties and he used to, used to take penalties and take guys off with them. Now, uh, and I hate to single guys out because it is a team game. You win as a team, you lose as a team. But, man, he just loves to put this team in positions to not succeed, and it's really frustrating. Probably the only thing more frustrating is his contract makes him virtually untradeable. It's tough. It's tough to watch night in and night out, I'll be honest with you. Um, but... You know, I can sit here and bitch and moan. Nothing's going to happen. And uh, Sorokin, I still think he's one of the best goalies in the world. There's just something off this season. I don't know what it is. And I'm not blaming him for today. I mean, (laughs) clear the fucking crease. And I don't expect guys to break those fucking, you know, old school Titan and Sherwood lumber over guys' backs, although I would love to see it. Uh, you can't do that anymore. You have to, it's a kinder, gentler game. I understand that even if I don't like it, but I've never seen a team let guys stand in front of their goalie more than this team. It's, and maybe I'm, 
I only watch the Islanders, so I don't know if other teams do it, but it's so fucking frustrating. It, it really is. And I just think Sorokin is a little off. I don't know what it is. He's a goalie. They're all fucking weird. I still take my chances with him, though. I love the kid. And uh, hopefully whatever it is, it just, uh, you know, shakes it off. And, uh, you know, it's getting to crunch time now. Are they going to be buyers or sellers? It's running out of time here. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, the episode today, uh, it's a uh, from the vault episode. I have, uh, well, it's like I said, it's the one time a year I get serious here. If you're familiar with my story, what happened to me on the subway 13 years ago, um, the anniversary just passed this past Monday. And I usually release this type of episode on or around the anniversary. And last week I wasn't going to not release the uh, Steve McLaren finale episode. So I'm going to release this one today. Uh, it's a week past the uh, anniversary, but everything still holds true. So if you're unfamiliar with the story 13 years ago on February 12th, 2011, I was on a subway and I ended up running into a guy that was on the run. He was a fugitive spree killer. And the long and the short of it is, this is the really short of it. Um, he ended up attacking me. I ended up fighting back. Uh, I was able to disarm him. He stabbed me seven times and uh, everything happened in front of two police officers who were on the train specifically to arrest this guy. They hid for their own safety behind a locked steel door and did not emerge until I had him disarmed. And then later on, the city had a press conference, took credit for the arrest, took credit for stopping him, and um, I went to court. But I'm giving away all the plot lines here. This is a long episode, and I didn't feel like recording it again. So you may have heard this episode the first time. I think it's full of details, and I think a lot of people are not familiar with the story, maybe some new listeners. Um, I believe I get emotional in it. I recorded it a couple of years ago, maybe last year. I don't. I honestly don't remember if this was last year or two years ago. And to go through the whole thing again and to just rehash the details again, it, it was just a lot, to, to be honest with you. It was just a lot. I, I couldn't... Nothing nothing would have been different than the episode I recorded that I'm bringing back today. So there really wasn't a need for it. The only thing that's different is the number of years, the anniversary. So in uh, 2024, like I said, this was the 13th anniversary. So in this episode, you probably hear me say 11 years or 12 years because I don't remember when I actually recorded it. But this is the 13th year anniversary. And for those of you who've heard this episode before and you're going to listen again, thank you very much. For those of you who are listening for the first time, thank you very much. And I think it's just, I always say it's a cautionary tale, especially the way the world is now, um, especially the way New York City is now. Uh, if you're someone that lives on the island and you commute to the city or if you live in the city, uh, I think if you're realistic you know it's a very dangerous place right now. And you also know defending yourself or someone else is a risky proposition now with the people in charge. So 
hopefully you'll learn from my story. You'll, you know, maybe be more alert because I'd hate to have any one of you uh, in a position that I was in and, you know, just, uh, just give it a listen. And uh, I'd love to hear some feedback on this if you don't mind and, and let me know. And if you're familiar with the story, maybe it's just something to, uh, to jog your memory a bit. So uh, with that, we're going to do a commercial here from uh, DraftKings, and then we'll get on to the story. Uh, episode 145, Death and Rebirth. Uh, I usually say I hope you people enjoy it. I don't know if this is an episode that you enjoy. Uh, I certainly hope that you people learn something from it, and uh, thank you very much for listening. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code THPN. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets, only on DraftKings Sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. I titled this episode Death and Rebirth. And for those of you who are new listeners to the show or new listeners to me or the story I'm about to say, um, 11 years ago yesterday, which was February 12th, 2011, um, I was involved in a very high-profile incident on a New York City subway. Now, with the anniversary coming up, which of course it was yesterday, but about a week or so ago, I was um, just searching things on iTunes and I put in Maxim Gelman, who was the uh, the murderer, the scumbag, the piece of shit, the uh, pimple dick motherfucker who uh, was the cause of all this. And um, I found two podcasts that... Uh, dealt in true crime and they were both uh entertaining podcasts one uh one was by uh two women and one was hosted by a woman and the co-host was a man um one was one it seemed like they got a lot of their information from uh wikipedia which uh as i think everybody knows while most of the stuff on there is pretty accurate, there is some stuff. I mean, I could go on Wikipedia right now and change anything I want. And, um, you know, I don't know how soon it gets changed, if ever. Um, and a documentary. And I, I generally don't promote this documentary because it's horseshit. But if you're listening to this now, I'd really like to make something clear. Um, there have been two documentaries made about this uh, asshole, Maxim Gelman. And one of them is, is they're both part of a series. The first one was the killer speaks and that was on a and E and now it's, it's run constantly on, um, uh, I don't know, discovery ID. I don't know, but it's constantly on the, the grid 
on my TV, so I see the series on constantly. They replay that episode constantly, and I've had people say, hey, I saw you on that, that documentary, and I always say, oh, the killer speaks, and they say, yeah, and I say, well, take that with a grain of salt. Um, I'm telling you about the killer speaks now, and I generally don't talk about it because I don't want to give it any more publicity, but uh, the killer speaks, the part about how Maxim Gelman was apprehended is a complete farce. It's utter and complete bullshit. Um, they interviewed me for three and a half hours. The people with, uh, and it's not A&E, it's whomever the production company was. They interviewed me for three and a half hours. I gave them my story. I gave them the first person account that I'm going to give you folks in a few minutes. And then they interviewed a bunch of other people or they interviewed those people first, whatever. I don't know the exact order. Um, and I, I guess they figured that my account wasn't very, um, I don't know, trustworthy or whatever, uh, because then they spoke with people that worked for the NYPD and they ended up using the NYPD's version. And I, I guess because their version lines up a little bit with what Maxim Gelman says happened, which is funny because they're basically taking the word of two cowardly cops and a guy so jacked up on PCP that I'm surprised he could remember his name over somebody, myself, who all I had to, all I had that morning when I stopped this guy was a Wawa coffee and a sizzly. So I was under the influence of nothing, and I certainly wasn't a chicken shit like the two cops. I'm not patting myself on the back, but I was there. I was in the middle of it. They were hiding. We'll get into that. So whoever the production company was for The Killer Speaks said, hmm, let's go with this account, and let's interview people that are going to kind of Go with that narrative. And that really pissed me off. And that really, really pissed off people in my family, especially my wife and especially my sister, who is a retired NYPD officer. And it really pissed off a lot of people that know me, many of them NYPD officers. So what I'm going to tell you is this. If you choose to watch that documentary, the killer speaks know that I, the most of it, I believe is accurate for what I've heard in terms of the timeline. The morning of February 12th, don't believe a word of what you're told on that documentary because it's bullshit. Plain and simple bullshit, and I have said this a million times, get me in a room with anybody on the train that day. I want it. I want it bad. And let's compare notes and let's see. Let's see who's right. Let's see. Okay. Hook us up to lie detectors. Hook us up to whatever you want. Put a judge in there. Put Jesus in there. Put whomever you want in there. Let's do it. Didn't happen. Um, I'd like to direct you to my Twitter feed. And this is uh, the at Joe underscore Lozito Twitter feed. Uh, 
every day, every single day, I tweet out a documentary that has not been broadcast in this country. It's another series called Spree Killer or uh, no Killing Spree, Killing Spree. I'm sorry. This is a series that was done by a British production company and they've had a lot of shows on tv over here mostly on the networks that do true crime like discovery id for whatever reason it wasn't picked up in this country but it aired in a lot of different places all over the world and um, because i was a part of this documentary they sent me a copy and uh, i tweet it out every day so what i ask you to do is this if you are so inclined to watch the killer speaks because i now because now i know if you're curious and you haven't seen it, you're going to you're going to want to watch that. No problem. But please, when you're done watching that, can you please go to my Twitter feed and watch the documentary that I post there? It's uh it's it's I titled it uh Joel Lazito Maxim Gelman documentary because I couldn't use the title. They uh removed it once before. So it's just under Joel Lazito Maxim Gelman documentary. It's on Vimeo. Please, it's 45 minutes. Go watch that documentary. It's way more accurate. And um, it tells you the truth about what happened. So the reason why I started talking about this is because, like I said, I listened to these two podcasts. And they were both entertaining. But like I said, the first one, um, you know, it's tough. When you get your facts off of, you know, like I said, Wikipedia or stuff like that. You never know. You just don't know how accurate it is. And, and that, and it's what I always say about this show when I do interviews with guests. It takes me forever to do my research because I, I when, the, when the interview's over and when you folks listen to this, I want you people when you're done to go, wow, that is the most extensive interview I've ever heard with that guy. And I want the, the guest to say, wow, I can't believe he asked me that question. I, I haven't thought about that in 10 years. I haven't thought about that in forever. I want it to be an experience that the guest appreciates that I didn't waste their time and that, that you people appreciate because it makes it worth your while to listen. And when I hear podcasts that, I mean, most of the podcasts I listen to, I don't know the whole story because... They're, they may be talking about, you know, talking to another guest that I'm not completely familiar with their story, talking about news items that I'm not completely familiar with. But when you hear a podcast about something that you were a part of and they get the ending wrong, you know, I always say, <clears throat> excuse me, I always say that I'm easy to find. I'm easy to find. I'm on social media. I'm on all the platforms. You can find me. And I have never turned down an interview, and I'm always happy to talk about it because for me, since I got screwed by the justice system and put justice in quotes, all I have is getting the story out there. That's all I have. So I've never, ever turned down an interview, and I still won't. So again, if you're going to do an interview or you're going to do a podcast or whatever about Maxim Gelman and, and the sequence of events... Eventually, you have to get to the ending, and if you want someone's account that was actually there, here I am, easy to find. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, I listen to these shows. Like I said, the first one, entertaining, but not entirely accurate. Second one 
was way more entertaining and way more accurate. And if I was prepared, I would absolutely tell you who those podcasts were, but I'm not. And my phone is dead, so uh, I don't have them. But really, it was just, um, I just again, um, if if there are still shows being done on this subject, and there are still people getting it wrong, then obviously I'm not doing enough. And I, I, I thought I was, and I, I really thought that by posting about it on social media, I was doing enough to get the story out there. But there's still people who are getting it wrong. And they wouldn't get it wrong if I was able to take my case to court, which we will discuss in a minute. Um, but it's, I have this platform, I have this show, and I have you people out there that listen to it, and um, I appreciate that. So many of you may have heard this already. This would be the third time I'm going to talk about this on the show. I'm not going to go into the uh, as detailed about the, the timeline of Maxim Gelman and what he did, um, because that's already on here a couple of times. And uh, I really want to give more so... I really want to pick it up from when I got on the subway because um, if someone gets part of his timeline incorrect, I can't dispute that because I can only go by what I've read or what I've been told. But I can certainly tell you if you have the ending wrong. So again, I, I really want to focus on that today. So, uh, But like I said, I've never, ever turned down an interview. I'm very easy to find on social media. And um, more so with the first one that I listened to, I'm thinking, you know, if you want to know the whole story, you know, just reach out to me. Uh, second interview, I would have loved to, to chat with them. They were really funny. And, uh, you know, they did their homework. Uh, they didn't necessarily need me, but um, I did send them an email thanking them for their research on that. and. Um, that's really, I always do sort of a recap episode around the time, the anniversary, and um, that's what this is. But like I said, I don't want to go into the whole thing about Maxim Gelman's timeline. So what I will do is um, I will say that um, my portion of this story actually begins the night before. Now, Maxim Gelman's portion of the story begins earlier that day and that's february 11th and on february 11th maxim gelman uh started his reign of terror he murdered four people um i mean it's still it's still something i find very hard to wrap my head around that i was face to face with a killer um and i you know he murdered his stepfather. He murdered um, a young lady, Elena Polchenko, who um, he was infatuated with, but obviously had better taste, wanted no part of him in a romantic setting. I believe they did run in similar circles at times, but um, Elena had much better taste than to get romantically involved with him. Um, and he eventually murdered her. He almost decapitated her. Um, before he, uh, got to Yelena, he had, uh, murdered her mother, Anna. And I always say that, um, you know, I'm assuming that there's a Mr. Bolchenko 
Anna's husband and Yelena's father. And um, a lot of people lost a lot of people that day, but um, Mr. Bolchenko lost a wife and a daughter, and I, I can't fathom that. And, um, you know, it's just whenever I talk about this, it, I always have to mention uh, mention the other victims. Uh, they're not the other victims. They're the victims. They're the people who are murdered. That um, uh, It's just, just crazy. Uh, the fourth person that he murdered was Stephen Tannenbaum. He wasn't a stabbing victim. He was uh, run over by this asshole. He carjacked a few cars, and he was uh, driving full speed, never stopped, and uh, basically just blitzed right through Stephen Tannenbaum. He ended up being the, the fourth casualty of this piece of shit. And, um, you know, then uh, as he's on the run, he's carjacking people, he's attacking people, slashing people left and right. And um, while that's going on at night, the... Um, Fight night at the Coliseum, the rematch between the Islanders and Penguins. And uh, if you listen to uh, my Clark Gillies saga, um, Cl- uh, Clark Trevor Gillies, I'm sorry, I have Clark Gillies in the brain with everything that's gone on recently. But if you uh, if you listen to my uh, Trevor Gillies saga here, uh, Trevor really took you in depth about uh, what was going on in that Islanders locker room before the game and on the ice and. If you're an Islanders fan or a Penguins fan or or a hockey fight fan, you know exactly what I mean when I say fight night. I call it the revenge game. I kind of like the revenge game better. Uh, But fight night, it seems to go by fight night uh, in the general populace calls it fight night. But I kind of like the revenge game. So um, that game happens. I am wired. I mean, absolutely wired when the game's over. And... um, now I can't sleep and I'm up to the wee hours of the morning. I have to get up early the next day because I'm living in Philadelphia and I'm working in New York and, um, my shift starts at nine 30. Um, so I get up and I'm tired. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I didn't get a lot of sleep and, uh, I'm tired, but uh, all I wanted to do was get to work that day and talk about the game to people who really don't give a shit about the game. I just needed, uh, <clears throat> to talk about this with somebody. Like I said, people I work with, they don't give a shit. But it was okay cuz I was just so jacked up and I wanted to talk about it with them. So eventually on the morning of February 12th, 2011, as I get to Manhattan and get to Penn Station, my life has changed forever as I got on an uptown number 3 train. So if you're familiar with New York subways and you're familiar with Lincoln Center, uh, if you get on the one train at Penn Station, uh, the one is the local train. It makes all stops. And I believe it's the fifth stop is Lincoln Center. That's the train I take almost every day. Now, that day, there they were uh, doing construction on the tracks. So the one, the two, and the three train we're all running express. What does that mean? Well, that means if I go on the platform for the one, which is normally a local track, that train is going to run express and it's going to mimic the stations that the express trains, the two and the three, that's going to mimic those stops. 
So even though they're on different platforms, they're going to make the same stops. In other words, no uptown trains that day were local. Now, I don't know if once you got past Lincoln Center, if they went back to local, I have no idea. But from Penn Station to Lincoln Center, no local trains. So what do I have to do? I have to take the train from Penn Station to 72nd Street, which is the station after Lincoln Center, get off. I could either take a downtown subway for one stop, or what I would normally do when I had to do that is just walk from 72nd to 66th Street. No big deal. Okay. So as I'm standing on the platform for the one train, I have this great idea. Well, this train's running express. And if I go to the other platform, those trains are running express. But the difference is on that platform, there's two trains running on that platform. On this platform, there's one. So what does that mean? Double the trains on that platform. Double the, double the opportunity to get on a train and get to work quicker. So it's a, <clears throat> it's a situation that uh, I've had many times before that day and one I've had many times after that day and before and after I have never I never did and I never have since left the one platform to go to the two or three for whatever reason if you believe in things happen for a reason that day I said I'm going to go on that platform so I did something I normally don't do. I went to the other platform. And now the first train that pulls up is an uptown number three train. So this is where my life is changed forever. I um, Generally in New York, if you're not familiar, and maybe it's like this in your where you live too, if you have a transit system. Um, what I noticed is whether it's the Long Island Railroad, whether it's Jersey Transit in New Jersey, whether it's SEPTA in Philadelphia, whether it's the subways, most people, when they get on the platform, many times it's in the center of the platform. And many people don't walk too far from where they get on the platform, which means generally the middle of the train is the most congested. That's why I would always walk to the front or the back. It's usually a lot emptier. And that day I did. I walked to the front of the train. And as I suspected, it was a lot emptier than the middle. Now, this was a Saturday morning, so it wasn't like a rush hour train during the week. But it's still Saturday morning in New York. You got families going places. You have people from the night before doing the walk of shame. I guess doing the ride of shame then doing the walk of shame. It was uh, moderately filled, the car I was in. And um, the doors, normally they open. They're open for, what, 10 seconds, 15 seconds? I don't know. And then they close, and you proceed to the next stop. Well, this day, I get on the train, and the door stayed open for a little bit. And then next thing I know, there's uh, two police officers get on, and they go right into where the engineer drives the train. I was uh, sitting right behind the engineer, separated by a wall. Now, I have been on subways many times before with police officers. I've never seen them get into the motorman's booth. 
ever. They always stay in the main part of the car, whether they're there for a reason or they are going station to station. They always do that. There's no reason for them to go in with the motorman. So I did I did think that was a little weird, especially because the uh, the motorman's booth is not very big. There's already the motorman in there. And now you have you add two more people, and one of the officers was a very big man, so I can't imagine there was too much room left after he got in. But the three of them were in there, and after and and while they're getting on the train and while they're in there, I hear their radios, and the radios are going crazy. I can't hear what they're saying, but there's a lot of action on there. And again, I don't know. It's a Saturday morning in New York. Who the hell knows what happened the night before? I don't. Our Philadelphia paper that day, it's the super early edition. So anything that happened in New York the day before, not in there. Nothing in there at all about it. So finally, finally the doors close. And, you know, subway's like a car, like a motorcycle. Doesn't take off, slowly accelerates, and then it hits a speed, and you go. Not this day. This day, we crawled, and we were going very slow. Again, thinking, this is weird, but who the fuck knows? It's New York. It's New- I always say, it's New York City. Who the hell knows what's going on? But then, the weird got weirder, and as I'm sitting there, and now again, I'm right behind the engineer, and on the wall where I am, it's basically uh, a wall with a door. Door's in the middle. Door has a window. And this guy comes up and starts pounding on the door. Says, let me in. Now, he doesn't know that on the other side of the door, there's two police officers. He thinks he's talking to the engineer. So a voice from the other side says, who are you? And this guy says, I'm the police. And the voice on the other side says, you're not the police. And with that, this gentleman that knocked on the door that wanted to get in, turns around and walks to a seat. Now, I'm sitting there again going, this is really weird. But could it just been, I don't know. Homeless guy acting up. I don't know. He looked a little dirty. But again, it's New York City. I don't know. But two things happened that got my attention very quickly. One, when, <coughs> when excuse me, when this gentleman walked away, he sat down next to a young woman on the train. And before he even hit the seat, <coughs> excuse me, before he even hit the seat, she was up and gone, out to the other end of the car, like like magic. Again, it's New York City. But then there was a guy standing next to me, and that guy bolts right to the door, and he looks like he is scared to death. And what does he do? He is tapping on the window. This guy is doing the... <laughs> the best he can to try to get the cop's attention and not alert the guy that was just up there. So he's tapping aggressively, but trying to be quiet. 
trying to get their attention. And he's tapping on the window and waving them out and tapping on the window and waving them out. Nothing happens. They don't come out. They don't do anything. And while this guy's doing this, he's looking over his shoulder at the first guy. And now what happens is that guy decides, well, he's going to come back. So this guy that's up there now hightails it right back next to me. And now I can't even say it's New York City because now shit's getting real and I don't know what the fuck's going on. But like I said, shit's getting real. It got real, real in the, within the next 10 seconds because that guy, the first guy that was banging on the door trying to get in, he's walking back up to the door. He stops about three feet from the door, about two feet from me. I'm still seated. He looks down at me. I look up at him. We lock eyes. Looks me dead in the face. Reaches into the back of his jacket. I guess the back of his pants, whatever. And he says, you're going to die. You're going to die. He takes out this giant knife, eight-inch blade. Plunges it right into my left cheek. Well, what do you say to that? Um, <laughs> I... Uh, Honestly, people always ask me, like, what were you thinking? And um, he didn't give me time to think. You know, uh, the only thing I could say is I knew if I didn't do anything, I'm done. I'm done. You're you're never prepared for someone to plunge an eight-inch knife into your face. I can, I can tell you that. I think even if you take certain uh, self-defense training and there's uh, – scenarios where a guy with a knife attacks you. I, I don't know. I don't know if you're really ever prepared for that. If you can kind of get your mind right and go, okay, well, if this guy over here with his hand in his pants comes out with an eight inch knife and stabs me in the face, I'm going to do this. Like I, it, it, it took me longer to tell you what happened than it then actually happened because it was so quick. Um, and the one thing I will tell you is, is, uh, while it was quick, it did seem like it was in slow motion, if, if that makes any sense to you. And uh, I saw the blade. Like, when he pulled the knife out, I got a great look at it. I mean, it was right there. And the blade was filthy. Now, I don't know who the fuck this guy is, so I'm thinking he's a dirtbag, probably just dirty, whatever. Uh, what I found out later, after I found out who he was and what he had done, was that the stuff on the knife was not dirt. It was the blood of the people he had stabbed and murdered and attacked. So keep that in your, uh, in your brain there. Um, but yeah, so that's what happened. It was, uh, you know, he used the same knife to attack me as he did to murder everyone else and, and attack the other people. And I'll never forget looking at that knife. And I, and I've actually posted a picture of that knife and it's actually in the graphic of, uh, of this episode. So, um, yeah, so he, he, um, he puts it in my cheek, pulls it out. And now I know, like I said, I have a choice. If I don't do anything, I'm dead. He's going to cut me to ribbons and, um, instinct just took over, you know, like, you know, people call me a hero and all that stuff. And I'm never comfortable with that. I, I'm really not. And I appreciate it. Don't get me wrong. I, I really do. Everybody that's ever reached out to me, uh, especially on the anniversaries, um, I really appreciate it. I'm just, I'm, I've never been comfortable with the hero thing. And um, 
I'm never going to be comfortable with the hero thing. Um, this guy put me in a position where I had to make a decision, fight or flight, you know, and, uh, and I chose to fight because if I didn't fight, I would definitely be dead. Now, if I fight back, he still may kill me. I mean, after all, I'm not a trained fighter and he has an eight inch blade and the odds are not in my favor. Um, so, but I knew if I knew that if, uh, if I had any chance of surviving, I had to fight back. So, um, I kind of just leapt out of the seat and I wanted to attempt a single leg takedown. So if you're not familiar with wrestling or MMA, single leg take, I mean, think about it. What's the easiest way to get someone down? You go for their legs. But because I don't know what I'm doing, uh, I shot in too high and I shot in around his waist. And what it essentially became was a football tackle. And um, which was effective because it did the job. I got him down. The downside of that is it gave him free reign to absolutely butcher my head. And um, he got me three times really good in the head, including one. Um, it's it's the photo. If you look at the thread I posted on Twitter, uh, it's the photo on the back of my head that goes down to basically the base of my neck. And... Um, that one was the worst one. I remember seeing a photo of it at the ADA's office. And uh, that one, you could actually see part of my skull. The The skin had spread apart so much that you could see part of my skull uh, before they stitched me back up. So, like I said, while I was able to take him down, uh, he's just carving my head like a pumpkin. And um, But I'm not feeling anything, to be honest with you. I, I mean... I've said it before that I've heard, I heard him grunting as he was putting a knife into my head. Like, <clears throat> like I heard that. I'll never forget that. I felt the pressure of the blade, but the actual cutting, I didn't feel. And I, and I would imagine that's due to all the adrenaline. I didn't feel anything. I felt the pressure, no pain. So, um, like I said, I got him down. I was on top of him and uh, he still has the knife. I mean, it's like, what else do I have to do? But he still has a knife. He's on his back, and he's flailing up at me. Uh, first time I try to catch his hand. Now, he's right-handed like I am. So if he's he's we're facing each other, he's flailing up with his right hand. I'm trying to catch it with my left hand, not my natural hand. Um, and I miss, and he cuts me in the thumb, basically that web part of your thumb, because you know you're looking at your hands right now. Uh, it's that part of the thumb that connects, connects it to the hand. So that webbing party cut me down there, sliced the tendon. Um, second time I tried to catch, I missed, and he sliced me in the tricep. And then the third time that uh, he he tried to stab me again, I was able to catch his wrist. I slammed his hand down, and the knife popped out. Now, the two things happened at this moment. Um, one, I tried to get the knife. And uh, I I have said this a million times. If this makes you uncomfortable, I really don't know what to tell you. But I I have been nothing but honest about this entire incident. If I was able to get the knife, I would have put it right through his chest. I wouldn't. My heart rate wouldn't have risen at all, because at this moment, I have blood pouring out of me. I think I'm I'm going to die. 
Like at this point, it was so chaotic. I really didn't have time to to really assess the situation because it's him or me. And what I did know was I got blood pouring out of me. And if I get this knife, there's one way to end this. And in the frame of mind I was in at the time, that was just animal. That was, um, it, it was basically two animals at that point, you know, no regard. He had no regard for my life. And to be honest with you, I had no regard for his. So had I been able to reach that knife, I would have plunged the knife so far into his chest. I would have hit the bottom. I would have hit the subway floor. I have no problem saying that in hindsight, probably best that I didn't get a hold of the knife. Now it's easy to say that now since I survived, but if it meant his life or mine, then it's it absolutely would not have been a good thing that I didn't get the knife. But I always say to people, uh, they may be uncomfortable hearing that, but like I said, I, I've been nothing but honest about this whole situation. And uh, had I been able to get that knife, he would not be here right now. And no question. Um, but I didn't. But what did happen was the two police officers on the train that were in with the engineer decided to come out. And I got a tap on the shoulder from the male officer saying, you can get up now. We got him. And, um, you know, as I just said, the whole situation at the time was just one big ball of chaos. And I'm like, I just remember thinking, okay. They got him, so now I'm going to get up. Now, while this was going on, someone had pulled the emergency brake, so the train had come to a stop. The problem is the train did not come to a stop at a station. It came to a stop in the tunnel. So now we're in the tunnel between 34th Street and 42nd Street. Not moving. I get up. I sit on the subway seat. And now I look around and I notice that there are not as many people in the subway car as there were when we, when I first got on the train. And those that are, are towards the other end of the car or in the next car looking through the window. And I don't blame any of them. I've had people say, aren't you mad at the people that didn't help or the people that uh, left? And I say, no way. Like, you're these people got on the train that day just going from station to station going from point a to point b nowhere in the manual does it say just so you know at some point there might be an attempted murder on the train you may have to get involved no i i i don't hold any of those people that left the, the car to go into the other car um <laughs> go two cars down three cars down or stayed in the car but went to the other end. I don't. Jesus Christ, no. They're just looking out for themselves. And, you know, I, I don't blame them. No animosity towards any of those people. Um, but it was noticeable. <laughs> it was noticeable that, that if you cut that car in half, the side I was on was pretty empty. And the other side was pretty empty too, but there were a few more people. But the second car, lots of people. Lots of people in that car. Um, 
Now, I am sitting on the subway seat. I got my head down. And uh, the blood. Yeah, there's a lot of blood. A lot of blood coming out of me. And uh, the analogy I've used since I started talking about this was the next time you're in the shower, turn your back to your shower head and have the water hit you in the back of the neck and watch the water come down both sides of your chest. That's what my blood was doing that day. And uh, I get I get chills thinking about it because I can see it. I just see it. I'm, I'm looking at myself right now and, and I see the blood coming out of both sides. And it's uh it's it's an ominous feeling. It's it's a dark feeling when it hits you that you might die. I know that Nickelback is not uh it's fun to make fun of Nickelback. I, I don't know why. I like Nickelback. I think they're okay. Uh but Nickelback put out a video for their song Saving Me. And 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 it's a pretty interesting video. And um, I'm not going to tell you what the video is about. I, I'd rather you go and look for it yourself. But I want you to understand when I saw that video, I saw that video after everything happened to me. And when I saw that video, I, I put myself in that video. And I wondered what, and you'll have no idea what I'm talking about unless you see it. I wondered what the numbers on my head would have looked like. And again, you have no idea what I'm talking about unless you've seen it. But I can only imagine how fast they were going. And it and it got to me. It really did. It got to me the first time I saw it. And even now, sometimes I'll watch it every now and then. And it still gets to me. Like I put, I think about it. And I think about what my numbers would have looked like. And how fast they would have been going. And all I'm thinking about is my family. All I'm thinking about is getting off that train. And seeing my wife and seeing my kids. But I'm in a tunnel on the subway and we're not moving and the body holds a lot of blood but you can only lose so much of it and i'm scared i'm scared to death i'm scared shitless that i'm not going to get off this train and um i look to my left and i see this asshole that just tried to kill me squirming the the big cop, the male cop, is having a hard time handcuffing this guy. The female cop, I would I've used the term useless before. If I haven't used the term beyond useless, I'm gonna use it now. She was beyond useless. You see your partner down there struggling with a perp, struggling to handcuff him. Get your fucking hands dirty and help him. Don't stand over him. And go, should I mace him? Should I mace him? Like like it's your first day out of the academy. No, you shouldn't mace him, dummy. You're in a closed subway car. Where does that mace go? It stays in the car. I know that. No, get on your fucking hands and knees and help this guy handcuff him. She never did. Who did? A person named Alfred Douglas. Now, of course, at the time, I didn't know what this person's name was. But this is just a passenger that went over and helped Terrence Howell. 
I'm trying to think of adjectives to describe him, but the only one I could think of is cowardly. Um, Alfred Douglas goes over, helps Terrence Howell handcuff this piece of shit. And um, I'm just still sitting there, bleeding. As Alfred gets up, there's still people in the car. And Alfred basically looks at all of them and says, how could none of you people do anything? You see this guy here, he's going to bleed to death. He's bleeding and you're just standing there watching. How could you people not do anything? And Alfred came over and as I said, I got stabbed three times in the head. The one that you could see my skull was the deepest. And Alfred, who doesn't know me, doesn't know my history, doesn't know anything about me, with his bare hand came over and applied pressure to my deepest wound. And uh, with that, a woman on the train had some tissues or some napkins. I don't know what they were. She gave them to him. He applied pressure with that. But if we're being honest, they were probably saturated within five seconds. But Alfred did that. He stayed there with me and um, tried to calm me down, tried to reassure me. And I, I always wonder, you know, I, I, I've had the opportunity to speak to Alfred after, and, and uh, I never asked him, and I really I really should. I want to know, like, what was Alfred thinking? Like, is he going to basically watch me die? And, and I wonder what that does to a person, you know? And, um, you know, people call me a hero. People call me the subway hero. Uh, to me, Alfred is a hero because Alfred was the one who helped useless Terrence Howell handcuff Maxim Gelman. And Alfred was the one who I, I, I honestly think if it wasn't for Alfred, I wouldn't be here today. So uh, to me, Alfred is the hero. And I will say his name forever when I tell this story, because after the fact, Alfred was interviewed by the NYPD. The NYPD interviewed everybody. Once once the scene was over on the train and I was off the train and Maxim Gelman was off the train, everybody on that train was interviewed by the NYPD. NYPD knew exactly what Alfred Douglas did. And the NYPD in New York City never once gave Alfred any recognition, never once mentioned his name. Instead, they gave credit to an off-duty police officer who wasn't even on the train. Never once mentioned Alfred, but gave credit to an officer named Marcelo Razzo. Next time I see Marcelo Razzo will be the first time. Marcelo Razzo was not on the train, but the NYPD statement says he was off duty and he helped apprehend Maxim Gelman, which is a fucking lie. So Maxim Gelman's now under control. I'm bleeding. We're still stopped. From the back of the train now, you got two, three cops at a time. They're coming on, coming on. Blitzing right past me. No one says shit to me, whatever. So be it. They go and they're talking to Howell. They're talking to Tamara Taylor, the useless woman cop. And um, we're still not moving. But I'm still bleeding. Um, more cops come on. And um, eventually, <laughs> like I'm sitting there really, my head's down. I see the cops walking past me and I grab, I, I like grab one of them by the hand and I go, uh, I go, what, what's going on? Well, we're getting there, you know, whatever he said. And I go, Hey, um, see the, I don't remember if I asked this cop if he had a wife or if he had kids, but there were two, two conversations and say the first one was, Hey, are you married? And they said, yeah. 
And I said, I'm married too. I need to get off this train. I gotta, you got to get me off this train. I can't die here. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll get you off. We're working on it. Don't worry. Okay. A couple of more minutes go by. More cops get on. Everyone's kind of casual. Like, this asshole's apprehended. They all got him. Not too chaotic, but there's still somebody here that's pretty much in a life or death situation. Nobody else really seems to care besides me and Alfred. Another cop walks by. Again, same thing. Hey, do you have kids? Yeah, I have kids. I'm like, you know, I got two little boys at home. And um, oh, this this is the part that fucks with me all the time. Oh, I say I got... Uh, I got two little boys at home, and uh, I got to get off this train. You got to get me off this train. I can't die. Don't worry. Don't worry. The paramedics are on their way. And I go, we're in the tunnel. What do you mean? Well, you see how we came on from the back? Yep. Paramedics are coming from the back. So why aren't we moving? We can't move the train until all the police officers are off the tracks. We can't put any of them in danger. Okay. <laughs> okay. I can I can tell you one person's in danger right now, but priorities, I guess, you know. And then the weirdest thing happened. After about 20, 25 minutes, the train starts moving. And now while I'm happy that the train is moving, I'm like, wait, hold on one second. Hold on. I thought the paramedics were coming. We're, we can't move. Someone says, no, no, no. They're, uh, they're waiting for you at 42nd Street. Okay. I was just told minutes ago that they were coming for me this way. Another lie. Never. They were never coming for me. They were waiting at 42nd Street. And the guy said, well, they're at 42nd Street. Uh, the station has been cleared. They're waiting for you on the platform. Okay. We pull into 42nd Street. Cops come in. More cops. They get the piece of shit Maxim Gelman off the train. Well, two, two paramedics came in for me first. While they're with me, the cops take out the trash. Now, paramedic, they bring the stretcher up there to where I'm sitting. And uh, they lift me up off the subway seat to put me onto the stretcher. As they're putting me down, I lose consciousness. And not completely. And when I lost consciousness, I did so with my eyes open. And um, I can still hear what's going on behind me. And um, the female cop, the useless female cop that I've mentioned already, Tamara Taylor, she's behind me. She's talking to another cop. And they're talking about me. And um, I hear her call me likely in the sentence. She calls me likely. Now, for those of you who've heard the story, you know what that means. For those of you who haven't heard the story, I'm going to hold off on that and tell you what that means in a little bit. 
But shortly, you know, it was a few seconds that I was out. Now I wake up and now is the first time I feel any pain. Now all the, I guess it was part of an adrenaline dump. No more adrenaline. The pain is, (laughs) it's beyond description, but I'll do my best to describe it. So I shave my head. And I, I equate the pain, and again, thankfully, I don't know for sure, but the way I describe it is, if you take my bald dome and douse it in gasoline and then light it on fire, that's what it felt like. If I could imagine what that feels like, I would equate it to getting my head stabbed three times. That's what it felt like. And I was, I mean, wow, the pain was ridiculous um so the paramedics and police they um bring me up the stairs no small feet and um they get me up there i get to the uh, almost to the top of the stairs um i don't know if this was uh, there was an officer up there i don't know if it was his first day i don't know if he was blind i don't know if he was being a smart ass um Maxim Gelman and I don't look anything alike, but this guy, I don't know, maybe he was practicing to be a comic. I don't know, but he says to the other cops, is that the perp or the Vic? Really? Is that the perp or the Vic? I'm like, come on, man. Are you kidding me? Right. But again, like I said, I don't know. Maybe he's, maybe it's the first day. I don't know. Maybe he's got eye problems, but they put me in the ambulance and, um, paramedics were amazing. They were amazing. And thank God it was a Saturday morning because there was very little traffic in New York. And while I was on the, in the ambulance, I was talking to the, one of the paramedics who was one in the ambulance with me, one guy driving and I'm like, do you guys have any painkillers? My head is killing me. And um, he said, no, we can't keep painkillers in the ambulance. They won't last too long. And I actually laughed at that. And he does have a point. I mean, they wouldn't. Um, and, and I just remember saying, please just keep talking to me. Don't let me fall asleep. Because, you know, again, I don't know. I, I still, I'm still worried I'm going to die. Like, I, I'm worried that I've seen my family for the last time that morning. I I still am concerned that if I fall asleep, I'm not waking up. And I just kept, I remember I just kept saying him, talk to me, just talk to me, keep me up. Uh, One thing I would like to say is um, it's really weird how things happen. I don't know. It's really weird. A few years later, I'm sitting in Vincent's, the best Italian restaurant on Long Island. And uh, I actually ended up sitting next to the paramedic. That helped save my life. I mean, what, how does that happen, right? Like, how how does that happen? But it's true. I actually ended up sitting next to one of the paramedics. And uh, I, I, like, I still don't know what to say about that. But it, it's true. It was wild. Um, but as I was asking them for painkillers that day, they said, listen, uh, they're waiting for you at the hospital. They know you're coming and they got the morphine drip ready to go. And I said, okay. 
and 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 I, I know I just kept saying, please just talk. Let's talk, talk, talk. Keep me awake. We get to the hospital. They get me off the uh, ambulance. They wheel me in, and I go into a room where there maybe started out with ten people. There may have been twenty people in there, and I got hands going everywhere, cutting my clothes off, and. I'm sitting there going, what are you cutting off all my clothes for? He said, he got me up here. And they go, well, we don't know. So we got to make sure he didn't get anywhere else, which, again, I understand. And uh, I'm just on this table, and they're just <laughs> they're cutting me, cutting my clothes off. And while I'm there, a police officer comes to the the head of the, uh, the bed. I call it a bed. I think it was more like a table. He comes to the head of the bed, and he shows me a mugshot. And he says, um, is this the guy that did this to you? And I said, yes. And he said, you're a hero. I said, I'm not a hero. Why am I a hero? And he goes, well, that guy killed four people last night. And uh, I always say it. I always have to pause after I hear that because I, when, when uh, I mean, what do you say to that? Seriously, what do you say to that? You have a cop here telling me that the guy who just tried to murder me murdered four people the night before. I, I mean, it just is. To this day, 11 years later, I, I just still don't know how to react to that. It it takes my breath away. It does. I mean, I didn't focus on the part of him calling me a hero because, like I said, I don't think I am. I focus on the part where he killed four people. And two seconds before that, I got all these people in this room put, you know, putting bandages on my head, you know, clean, trying to clean me up, cutting my clothes off. It's just this whole chaotic scene. And then he tells me what he tells me. And all of a sudden, all those people weren't there anymore. It was just me in like this, this state where I, I just, I hadn't, I didn't know how to absorb it. I had no idea how to absorb that news. Um, but you have to, right? Like you have to absorb it. So anyway, um, they get me kind of stable. They get the morphine going and it didn't take long. And, uh, I wasn't feeling too much pain anymore. And, um, they give me an MRI, I think. They did a bunch of tests. Now uh, I end up in a room. It's, I guess it's more like a triage. It's not It's not really a room. I guess it was separated, you know, by curtains. And um, in the room is a, a detective, maybe two detectives, a uh, detective and a cop. I don't really remember, but um, the one detective, really nice guy. Um, He's like talking to me, you know, how are you doing, whatever, what happened, and telling him. And uh, he's like, well, you want to call your family, I bet. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So uh, he says, well, I'll, you know, give me your phone. I'll call, I'll call your family. I said, listen, you know, my wife, uh, she's working. Uh, she's doing the books for her job. It's, it involves money. And uh, we normally don't pick up calls from numbers we don't know because he had actually said give me her number and i'll call her from my phone and and uh i go if you call her from your phone she's not going to pick up so he's like well let me try so we called her from his phone 
She didn't know the number. She didn't pick up. I think he tried twice. Um, so I go, hey, give me my phone. I'll call her. Okay. So I think I think a lot of times guys have weird senses of humor. Uh, we find things funny that women will never find funny for the most part. Um, so I've I've laughed at dumb shit before that Andrea would never laugh at. But um, I call her. And uh, she's like, hey, what's up? I'm busy. And um, I go, hey, uh, I just want to let you know there was an incident on the train today. Uh, I'm okay, but I was stabbed a bunch of times. And she's just like, Joe, I don't have time for this. Like, I'm almost done with the money. I don't have time for this. I got to go. And I go, uh, I go, no, no, no. I go, and really? And she's like, Joe, I got to go. I got to go. Um, so I. I take a break and I I just take a deep breath and I go, uh, Andrea, listen to me very carefully. <laughs> and I think at this point I actually chuckled because I knew this is exactly what was going to happen. I said, Andrea, listen. I said, there was an incident on the train today. I was stabbed a bunch of times. I'm okay, though. But you're going to have to come up. You're going to have to come up to the city. And this is, you know, the part on the train where I have to talk about my family and this part are the absolute worst parts of the story. And people go, well, wouldn't the worst parts be that you got stabbed? And I go, well, I guess, yeah, but the parts that involve my family are really difficult for me to talk about because I think as a man, you want to be there for your family no matter what. And, and you want to be there for your wife and your kids during the worst possible times. But if you being injured is that worst possible time and you can't be there, uh, just something that it just bugs me to this day and it's hard to talk about. So I'm trying to really be strong here, not not break down again. But I just, <clears throat> after I said that, I just heard, I just heard the life just drain from her over the phone. If there's a way to, describe that I could hear it leaving her body and she started screaming oh god yeah she started screaming and uh uh the detective uh he he took the phone and basically said look I'm gonna call you from my number from my phone just uh you know pick up pick up the phone oh yeah so um He basically calls her and says, I'm at Bellevue Hospital. And um, that um, she should pack a bag, you know, pack a bag. I think, I don't you know, she needs a bag of clothes. And I need some clothes and the boys, obviously. You know, we're going to be there for a couple of days. So, uh, once that was... Uh, once he hung up with my wife, he asked me about uh, my other family. You know, I said, "Well, my dad is in Kansas." I said, "Once we're once we're settled here, I'll I'll give him a call. I'll let him know um, because he he doesn't know. He's not seeing the news. Um, I'll I'll just call him myself." He said. Uh, my sister is actually a cop. I said, uh, if you call my sister and give her the details, 
um, she can call everybody else. So um, I gave him my sister's number. She picked up and um, he was talking to her. And I think he just said to her, look, please let your mom know. And, you know, Andrew's family, you know, my family, my in-laws and stuff. And then that's what happened. So now um, everybody was coming from Long Island except Andrea and my kids. They were coming from Philadelphia. So now I know you're thinking that, hey, you're in a hospital bed with seven stab wounds. It's got to be the worst part. Uh, you know, the worst part is being in the hospital with seven stab wounds, worrying about your wife and your kids. Because now um, my wife has to leave work. My kids are 10 and 7 at the time. They have to go home, pack a bag. This has to be so confusing for my kids. Um, she's got to try to explain it to them. But they don't know what they're walking into. All my wife knows is that I've been stabbed several times. And, uh, you know, they have no idea what you're walking into. So me in that bed at the time, not knowing when my wife was going to get there with my sons, that was the worst part because I don't have time to worry about myself. I don't care about myself. I want to make sure that they get up here quickly. And, um, you know, and I knew they were going to be up here after everybody else. Cause like I said, everyone's coming from Long Island. So once, um, once everybody got there, um, then I knew, okay, I don't know how much longer, but, um, you know, hopefully Andrea and the boys will be here shortly. So, uh, my sister came in, she was talking to me. She was talking to the detective. My, my sister just says to me, like, like I said, she's a cop. What happened? I told her what happened and I told her, uh, you know, basically everything I told, uh, you people here. And when I got to the part about Tamara Taylor calling me likely, my sister turned white and she goes, whoa, 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 Joseph, what did you just say? That's what she calls me when, uh, things are, uh, things are serious. I get the Joseph, not in trouble. Cause I don't get Joseph James, but I said, she called me likely. And, uh, my sister, like I said, again, she's a cop. She speaks the same language. She goes, uh, you know, likely means likely to die. And, uh, again, it's one of those moments where how do you react to that? And I think it was at that point where I kind of figured out that the cops on the train that day, if their actions didn't speak volumes, they were pretty much ready for me to fucking die because they had their guy. He's killed four people already. He's injured several others. What's one more guy. It doesn't matter to them. They have their guy. So, and ultimately, had I died, then the truth, everything I'm telling you now and will continue to tell you, well, that dies with me. The uh, revelation that likely means likely to die was the exclamation point on the whole thing. Um, but, you know, I got to see my sister. I got to see my mom, uh, you know, my in-laws. And uh, once that kind of settled down and the, the doctors came in and they were going to they were going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, 
I said to my sister, I said, please do me a favor. Can you call Andrew to find out where they are? Because I can't, I'm, I'm antsy here and I'm not antsy because I don't know what they're going to do to my head here. I'm antsy because I don't know where they are and I'm worried. So she said, yeah, yeah. I'm like, please. I said, just go outside when they pull up, just grab their car, you know, park wherever and just have them come in. Yeah, no problem. No problem. So the doctor basically tells everyone, look, we gotta, we gotta work on them now. And okay. So, um, basically doc, and again, most, uh, there were every doctor that worked on me that day, every, every, uh, nurse, uh, great. The plastic surgeon was a bit of a tool. Um, thankfully he didn't have to do anything to me because he was just there for, um, my thumb and my knuckle. And I decided that I didn't want him to do anything because I wasn't really worried about the scars, that stitches would be fine. But, you know, he was a bit of a prick, like an arrogant prick, you know, and I'm glad I didn't uh, need him to do anything for me. But the regular regular uh, doctors that um, were going to take care of my head and, and stitch me up, they were awesome. And uh, it's funny when I think about it now that I just got stabbed seven times and the doctor, when he, before he put in the... Uh, um, I don't know. And, you know, every year I say this and I don't know. Um, it's not Novocaine is what they put in your teeth to numb your gums and stuff. When they put in the numbing agent, let's call it that. He goes, I'm really sorry, but this is going to hurt. And uh, I probably said something smart, Alec, like, oh, man, it's it's all my morning has been. Whatever I said, whatever. But he just, he was warning me. He goes, look, this is this is going to make us be able to fix you up. but while it's going in, this is going to hurt. And fuck, was he right? Oh my God. And and my head was so jacked up. They had to, uh, they had to put in a bunch of it. But once that stuff coursed through all the veins of my head and everything else, they could have hit me with a sledgehammer. I wouldn't have felt it. I mean, they, they were amazing. So I, I, I tell people that's when I got my head. Um, there were the three, three cuts on my head were stitched and stapled and um stitches are are one thing i have had stitches before the stapling was a little weird because again i didn't feel the staples go in in terms of the the sharp edges going in but it was just like the pressure like the and you just feel it going into your head it's just like the pressure going into your head it's kind of like when you see uh on the home the home shows on HGTV. They got that nail gun and they're just like, chink, 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 chink. it was kind of like that. So that was very weird, but I didn't feel it. So that was okay. Um, so ultimately the damage was, um, was three wounds to my head. Uh, one on the right side of my head, two on the back, uh, the wound under my left eye. Um, I got a cut on my knuckle here, my, my middle knuckle and, um, my left tricep and my left thumb. So those are the, those are the seven wounds that I sustained. Um, eventually I hear my wife and my kids, I'm in, I'm still in that triage area behind the curtain. I hear them and, uh, I, I makes me makes me nauseous to think about what they were wondering what they were going to see 
fortunately, most of the damage was to the side and back of my head. You know, my left eye was busted up pretty good and uh, had a black eye and I had the stitches. But for the most part, all the damage was on the side of my head and the back of my head. So I remember when they opened the curtain, I mean, my eyes just lit up like it was Christmas Day. So, uh, and I, I know, I know that I just got the biggest smile on my face. And, uh, I think that kind of helped, helped them. I do. I think, uh, you know, if they would have walked in and I would have been unconscious, uh, that probably would have been hard. Or, or if, uh, I had all the stitches and stuff in my face, uh, the majority of that stuff in my face, that might've been difficult for them. But, um, I think because most of it was, was on the side and the back. And, and when they walked in, I just got this giant smile on my face. I think that helped them. And uh, I just remember, uh, just remember the three of them coming over and giving me a big hug. Oh, it was just the best. So I got to spend uh I got to spend some time with them and, and the rest of my family. And um after a while they were like, Look, you know, there's a lot of you guys here, he's gotta rest. So um you know, they said my wife, you know, Andrew, you could stay, but everyone else really needs to go. So uh, you know, I think they were fair and I think that was fair. Um so they went uh everyone went back to their houses, I guess, and um my uh Joey and Dominic, they went back to my mom's. So it was Andrea and I and uh they put us into a room and uh you know, watching T V and uh flipping through the channels and then you get to the tees, the news tees coming up at five and uh it was coming up at five. Uh spree killer Maxim Gelman is apprehended Hear all about it from the mayor and the police commissioner. All right. So, of course, you know, I didn't find out about this guy till I got to the hospital. I'm trying to piece together things while I'm there. Well, now I'm going to hear from the mayor and the police commissioner. So, uh, all right. So you got me. I'm the, I'm in. I'm all in. We're all in. So um, I'm lying there. Andrew's sitting there. The news starts and they go, uh, Breaking news a couple hours ago, uh, wanted spree killer Maxim Gelman was apprehended on an uptown number three subway train. Thanks to this, uh, well, then they go, uh, oh, press conference was uh, held however long ago, whatever. And standing at the, uh, standing at the podium, the mayor, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Commissioner Ray Kelly, a bunch of other jackasses. And um, the mayor says, Thanks to the swift action of police officers Terrence Howell and Tamara Taylor and off-duty officer Marcelo Razzo, Maxim Gelman was apprehended on an Uptown One train earlier this morning. And, oh, okay. And my wife goes red. And I look at her, and I still got a good amount of morphine in me. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I'm like, you know, just wait. Let's see. And, um. The only thing they mentioned about me was that uh, I was the latest victim, the last victim. And I hate that word. 
I do. I hate that word. I don't call myself a victim. I never, I, I have, I know in the past, I haven't in a while. I never will ever again because I don't think I'm a victim. So, um, now I'm still kind of loopy because of the morphine, but she's pissed and I'm starting to get pissed too. And again, I don't want credit. I want the truth. It's, it's all I ever wanted for 11 years. It's all I wanted was the truth. But the spin happened right away with that press conference. The spin happened right away with a tweet from uh, at NYPD News. And the spin was on. I um, I just, I just felt it was important to go over those details because... You can read what you want to read. You can read newspaper articles. You can listen to shows. You can watch documentaries. But what I'm able to give you is a first-person account of what happened from the time Maxim Gelman stepped on the Uptown Number 3 train until he was taken off and until I got to the hospital. So there's no account more reliable than mine out there on the internet, on a podcast, on a show, anywhere. There's no other account as reliable as mine. I was there. I remember everything. So I wanted to set the record straight with that. Now, really it's, it's a tale of two, two things because, um, you know, I, I won't go too much more, and I will say if you're interested in the whole story, please uh, um, go back. Um, I did a two-part episode last year on the anniversary called The Day I Died. Um, that'll have the details, like I said today, and also the de- the subsequent details about court. Um, basically, what happened was um, I testified before a grand jury. And it was uh, pretty intimidating because I'd never done that before. I don't think most people do. And uh, not intimidating because of, of what I had to say. It was pretty intimidating because you're in a room, you're in a courtroom, and I don't know how many people were there. It was a lot of people. And, uh, you know, as you can tell from this, I'm not exactly uh, – a professional when it comes to maintaining my composure when I tell this story, but um, I did my best that day. And the uh, ADA showed the jury pictures of my head before I was stitched. Uh, They were uh, horrified, absolutely horrified. Um, I watched people as they were given the picture. Some of them, I mean, actually a good portion of them wouldn't even look at them. They just handed them off to the next person. And um, I testified that day when I was done. I uh, went into the waiting room, waiting for uh, my wife and my sister. Uh, My sister had to go do something police-related that day, so she was taking care of that while I was testifying. And lo and behold, who do I sit next to? Who do I sit next to but uh, Tamara Taylor? And uh, I think she was testifying that day. I don't know. But while I was sitting next to her, that's when Terrence Howell was testifying. And I sat next to Tamara Taylor, and she looked all uneasy. 
and oh how are you doing whatever and make small talk whatever and I was you know just saying and I'm like yeah I said uh never forget when you called me likely and she just looked at me and she looked at me and goes you remember that and I'm like yeah I said uh I lost consciousness but I remember everything and she just got this look on her face like this real uneasy look and uh with that I think I got a text hey we're here whatever and I was like oh I'm gonna go wait outside and um I leave now I'm out of work uh, a couple of weeks. I go back to work and um, it's, <laughs> I swear to God, it's the first day I'm back at work. I uh, leave work. And um, if you're familiar with Lincoln Center, you know there's a big fountain right in the middle. I have some time uh, between the time I clocked out and um, had to make my train. So... I'm just on the phone talking, you know, my phone was crazy that those few weeks because people are hearing about it on the news and everything. And, um, so I'm talking to one of my friends and I noticed there's someone following me and I I said, you're not going to believe this. What? Someone's following me. And they're like, get the fuck out of here. And I'm like, I'm telling you, someone is following me. All right. I go, let me call you back. I hang up the phone. I slow down my pace. This guy doesn't slow down his pace. And I turn around and I'm like, can I help you? And he's kind of startled. He goes, oh, you know, hey, I'm not looking for trouble. I really need to talk to you. You're Joe, right? The guy from the subway, which I think in essence was sort of rhetorical because I basically looked like Frankenstein at that time. And uh, it was obvious I was, but, uh, you know, you got to ask, right? So uh, I said, yeah. He goes, hey. uh, do you have a few minutes to talk? I, yeah, absolutely. So uh, he goes, I just want you to know um, I was on the grand jury that you testified in front of. And I said, well, I don't know. How do I know that? That was on the news and everything. You know, can is there a way you could prove it to me? He goes, uh, well, I remember the pictures that they showed, and I remember that people did not want to look at them. He goes, I looked at them, but the people on either side of me did not, and most people did not. And I said, okay, because that was never made public, so I know you were there. What's up? He said, you know, I went home that day. He goes, what you should know is your testimony was very powerful. Uh, We were going to indict this guy no matter what, no matter what any of the cops said or anything. He was indicted after your testimony. He goes, but what you should know is after you testified, Terrence Howell testified. And... In his testimony, he said that uh, while you guys were uh, struggling, or right before, I guess when he reached into his jacket, he said he testified, and it's on the record, that um, Terrence Howell was going to come out. He started to open the door to come out, but he thought that Maxim Gelman had a gun. So he closed the door and stayed inside. Now I'm going to pause here for effect. Because what a what a uniform what an armed uniformed police officer just admitted to was the person he was on the train, the specific person that he was on the train to arrest that day. He was about first of all, he allowed this guy to injure another person, potentially kill them. And in the scuffle, while he was about to come out, 
to to get this guy off me, I guess, and make the arrest. He had second thoughts because he thought this gentleman had a gun. So he left this guy on the subway in a subway car full of people to potentially hurt or kill other people while Terrence Howell and his partner were safe behind a locked steel door. So I'm going to pause right now to let that sink in. So proceed with the sinking in. Sunk in yet? So he tells me this, and I'm floored. I'm like, like speechless. Like even 11 years later, I don't know what to say. I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yes. He goes, and when I went home and I was watching your interviews on TV, he goes, you're giving the police way too much credit. And I said, listen, I my, my sister's a cop. I have friends who are cops. It's a job I respect. I know they have a tough job. Um, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, you're giving these cops too much credit. He goes, forget about how you feel about the job in general. He goes, you're giving these cops too much credit. They hung you out to dry. And he said, um, when he was done testifying, while he was testifying, he goes, we were all looking at each other like, did he just say that? And when he was done and he left the room, he goes, we basically surrounded the ADA and asked him if we could bring this guy up on charges because he obviously didn't do his job. Basically, you have a room full of taxpaying New York City residents, and this guy's admitting to not doing his job. He goes, we were furious. And the ADA said, no, 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 that's not what we're here for. We're here to indict Gelman. And... um he basically said that he wanted to make sure that I was aware of that. And uh, I don't remember his name. If I did remember his name, I wouldn't say it. But I don't remember his name, and I'm glad I don't. But I am forever grateful. And, and if, if uh, that man is someone who has followed what I've done, whether it's writing the book or the documentaries or the show or other shows I've been on, and it's, it's a key part to the story, uh, I am forever in your debt for telling me that little nugget of news because I never would have known otherwise, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, now, of course, I felt like I was attacked all over again, and now I had to wait two and a half hours because I was living in Philadelphia again at the time. Now I have to take the train home to Philadelphia. Now I go home. I tell my wife. Now, of course, we want to pursue legal action. And, and I'll I'll go through this pretty quickly um, because I really just, you know, that's that's out there. Um, we uh, we contact a lawyer who I really like and um, tell him what's going on. He'd heard of the case and uh, he basically he was very cool right from the right from the out, outset. He goes, look, he goes, come in, talk to me and we'll discuss it. And um, I did that. Uh, later that week, I was off from work. I drove up to Long Island and uh, I sat and I talked to him and he goes, you know, since we got off the phone, I did a little research on it. He goes, I'm going to take your case, but I just want you to know what's going to happen. I said, okay. He goes, first, we're going to file the claim. He goes, uh, then we're going to go through discovery. And he goes, once we're done with discovery, they're going to move to dismiss the case. And I start laughing. I'm like, dismiss the case? I'm like, how could they dismiss this case? There's no way. So he calls me over to his computer screen. He starts having me read a couple of these cases. And he goes, 
what they're going to say is that the police officers did not owe you a duty to protect because you didn't have a special relationship. So I'm here going, I don't even know what you just said, but it sounds like a bunch of bullshit. Like in my head, I'm saying that because in my head, I'm like, there's no way they're getting out of this. But he goes, read these. And he had me read a couple of cases. So I'm like, but he goes, listen, I'm going to take the case. He goes, I'm going to work my tail off for you. He goes, I'm just telling you how it's going to be. And I go, what does that mean, special relationship? And basically, the way it was explained to me was, um, if I had known who Maxim Gelman was, and I knew there was this police manhunt for him, and I knew, and I saw Maxim Gelman, and I saw the cops, and I had said, hey, the guy you're looking for, Maxim Gelman, he's right here. And they acknowledged me, and we had a conversation about it. Well, now we have a special relationship. Exactly. It makes no sense. But it's, again, it's full, you know, the the justice system, the legal system, it's all full of loopholes. And that's a loophole. I did not have a special uh, relationship. So they did not owe me a duty to protect. But again, in my head, I'm like, uh, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. And um, so we filed the case. Um, he goes to court, I think, once or twice. Then my wife and I have to go get interviewed by the city's insurance adjuster. Well, good news and bad news there. Uh, he was very impressed. Uh, we do the interview. My wife was only interviewed for a couple of minutes. I was interviewed for a little longer than that. Uh, as we're getting up to leave, he goes, uh, Ed, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, you know, no problem. So Andrew and I go wait outside. Ed comes outside with the big smile on his face. And I'm like, what's up? And he goes, man, he goes, he just called you the city's worst nightmare. And I start laughing. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, he goes, first, you remember everything. He goes, you can recall everything without getting excited, without losing your temper. Uh, he goes, you speak very clearly, and you sound like you know what you're talking about, and you sound very confident. He goes, um, he interviews a lot of people, and uh, they they react differently. Everyone reacts differently. He goes, but you're calm, and you're cool, and you are basically reciting everything the way it happened. He goes, you're the city's worst nightmare. So in a way, I thought that was a good thing. Well, I guess that kind of backfired on me because, like Ed had said, they moved to dismiss the case. Now, unlike what Ed said, Ed said that they would probably make the motion to dismiss after discovery. I don't know if this interview kind of shook them up a little bit, but they said, look, we didn't even get to the discovery phase. They made the motion to dismiss. Okay, so um, we have a court date. Ed goes to court. He gets an extension. Um, before the next court date, Ed calls me, and he says, listen, he goes, I got bad news for you. He said, um, I have racked my brains. I've, I've met with other attorneys uh, trying to get around this no special duty thing. He goes, they have a lot of precedent in their corner. I really don't see a way where I can fight this. So I said, okay, uh, what are my options? So he goes, well, he goes, we could just this, we could just tell him that we're withdrawing it and that's it. And life goes on. 
for you. Um, he goes, you can try to find another lawyer. Uh, he says, but understand that finding another lawyer means that, uh, first of all, they probably were not going to take the case on contingency. And then not only that, they had to find something that Ed and his colleagues couldn't find to fight this motion to dismiss. So he goes, you can try to do that. He goes, I can even give you some names of people, but that might be uh, a tough sell. He goes, you never know. He goes, or, and so I go, wait, Ed, I said, hold on. I said, I know this is probably crazy. I said, but what about, can I, I said, look, I can't afford another lawyer, um, especially if they're not going to take the case on contingency. Um, can I represent myself? And he goes, you know what? I normally wouldn't recommend it. He goes, but in your case, he goes, uh, you have nothing to lose. And he said, you would actually, I think, be very sympathetic to a judge. So he goes, I would say if you if you don't have any other options, absolutely have a go. And, and um, so that's called pro se. It's another term I learned. Um, so he said, okay. He goes, you know, come to my office. I'll give you the files. And, um, you know, I'll help you in any way I can. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a letter to the court, letting them know I'm recusing myself from the case, letting them know that you're going to proceed as your own attorney, pro se. And um, that's it. So the next court date is whatever date it was. He goes, I would recommend that uh, you give yourself more time to prepare. So I would recommend you go there and ask for an extension. So that's what I did. I went there. I prepared uh, a request for an extension. There were two clerks there uh, that did not see the judge. Uh, one clerk could not have been cooler and one clerk could not have been a bigger asshole. And of course I had to deal with the clerk that was an asshole. So, uh, I, I had uh, asked for an extension and he's like, you know, your lawyer has asked for extensions already. He goes, we can't keep postponing this. And I said, "Uh, look, I said, I understand that. I said, but I'm representing myself now. I just, you know, I'm asking for a little bit of time to prepare my case pro se and it was like i was asking him to you know whatever think of something very difficult and that's how he reacted but reluctantly he gave me some more time so while i was going up against the city who has any number of attorneys working for them any number of resources working in their favor or uh, available to them i was basically preparing my case before work, after work, and on my days off. And um, when I was done, I sent my uh, paperwork to Ed. He looked it over. He, I, you know, nice compliment he paid me. He goes, you know, for a layman, this is actually pretty good. Uh, he told me some stuff. He goes, you know, this is kind of repetitive. Maybe get rid of that. Um, uh, but he said, overall, he goes, I really, he goes, it's actually pretty good. And I, hey, you know what? I love to write. And, uh, so I took that as a compliment, um, you know, doing my research on the, on the cases that they used, none of which, none of which had anything to do with my case. They're throwing out cases to support their case, um, about fences surrounding schools, uh, and lack of locks, um, furniture, office furniture, uh, was one of the cases, um, exotic cars, was one of the cases. So 
they were just throwing everything against the wall, and and I think it was quantity over quality, and they just this, this insane number of cases they cited, none of which had anything to do with me. And going into it, my goal was to just put some doubt in the mind of the judge, because I figured if I can put a little bit of doubt in the mind of the judge, then then she won't dismiss it, because. I, what what else can I do? I just have to put some doubt in her mind. And um, I learned a hard lesson because, um, uh, you know, I did just that uh, in her papers, in her <laughs> in her dismissal papers. The judge all but agrees with everything I said calls my recollection of events highly credible and passionate, whatever it was that she said. And I didn't know, you know, I, to this day, I don't know if she's trying to just be complimentary to try to soften the blow. Um, but I did not, I guess, put enough doubt in her mind. Although I think I did. I think I did. I just think, uh, you know, there are certain forces that work together. Uh, maybe one hand washes the other. I'm not afraid to say that. Uh, one one person scratches one back, the other person scratches. I mean, there's any number of things at work here, and um, unfortunately, uh, my case was dismissed. And um, I called Ed, and I said, "Well, what are my options now?" And he said, "Well, he goes, you can definitely appeal it. He goes, you will most likely not find any lawyer to take the appeal on contingency." And similar to when I told you that you'd have to, you could find another lawyer to take over for me. He goes, now this lawyer has even more appeal climb because he has to find a, a way to say that not only was their motion to dismiss incorrect, but their the judge's decision to dismiss the case was incorrect. So he said, that's a pretty much an uphill climb. And, um, you know, I don't think you're going to find a lawyer to take it on contingency. And, of course, he was right. I didn't. And um, it died on the vine right there. So um, what have I done since then? Well, I wrote a book, and a uh, self-published book. And, unfortunately, uh, all the money that I raised to write the book, I neglected to put any money aside for marketing. Uh, I basically did my research how much it would cost to publish this book. That's the number that I, that was my goal. And when I hit that goal, I said, perfect. And uh, forgot about marketing. So in terms of sales, uh, you know, let's call them modest. And that may be stretching things a little bit. But um, the people who've read the book, uh, I've, everybody has really good feedback. I mean, there's a couple of people on Amazon that didn't really care for it or me, and that's okay. Um, but the people who've read it really, um, you know, they told me that, uh, you know, they can, they can tell my passion and, um, you know, all sorts of good things. So I guess, um, I would like to say, Hey, I wrote this best-selling book and, um, you know, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, I hope to do with the book was to get the story out there, um, based on sales. I didn't get it out to enough people, but, um, I got it out to a good amount of people and people read the story and they know the, 
the ins and outs of the story. And um, I'm not not at all telling you to go on Amazon right now and buy the book. Uh, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm just telling you, um, as far as my recovery, my uh, peace of mind writing that book was uh, all the therapy I needed, every chapter. When I was done with a chapter, it was like another load of bricks were off my back. And um, I basically wrote the book uh, in over nine months of a year. I remember I had written, I think, for uh, about six months, and then I think I got burned out. And I took about three months off, and then I, I finished it uh, after that. And I'm glad I did. And um, uh, But don't look for it in bookstores. It's not, it's not good enough to be in bookstores. I mean, Kardashians have books in the bookstores. Uh, but my book's not good enough. But uh, but no, I mean, I, I wrote the book. It was very therapeutic for me. Uh, I've appeared on uh, multiple podcasts talking about it. And, um, you know, I've discussed it on my own show here. Um, my, uh, my only recourse right now is to get this story out to as many people as possible. And... Um, that's what I hope to do. Um, as some of you know, I have been furloughed from Lincoln Center due to COVID. Now I'm currently furloughed from Lincoln Center due to renovations. And I, uh, I'm very fortunate that um, I still know a few people at Madison Square Garden. And uh, I reached out to them months ago and I said, hey, listen, I'm going to be furloughed for a while. Uh, if you're looking for people, keep me in mind. And they were. And I've been there since October, I believe, late September, October. Um, I'm very, very fortunate that they took me back. So there's probably five or six people that still work there from the time that uh, I did. And uh, I've made a lot of new friends there, really, really good people that work there. Um, I mean, as far as ticket selling goes, I, I told the boss there, I said, you got a lot of young talent here. Um, really, really good kids. And, um, uh, woman I work with, Carolyn, um, really, really is, uh, taking a big interest in this story. And, um, she really has uh, lit a fire under me about, um, trying to get this made into a movie. Now she knows some people in the business and, um, you know, so far things are going slowly on that Avenue, but um, this week I will be sending out letters and copies of the book to, uh, I have a list of people and, um, who knows what happens, you know, uh, in an earlier episode, I said, I want, uh, you know, after a shitty 2020 and a really shitty 2021, I really wanted to make, uh, 2022. I wanted to make that a really good year. And, um, you know, back to work, that was a start. Um, we were renting a new place now that we love. Uh, that's a new start. We got a puppy a couple of weeks ago. That's a new start. Uh, just trying to load up this year with positivity. And, um, ultimately if, uh, if I can, you know, all it takes is one person to kind of look at the book maybe and, uh, read my letter or whatever it is. And again, just let me look into this. Let me see what's going on here. So all it takes is one. I know that, you know, fuck these people in the Hollywood. They get um, 
shit thrown their way every day. But uh, what I've always said is, especially when it came to me defending myself in this case, is I can only do what I can do. And I did everything I could do. I gave every ounce of energy that I had into um, writing my uh, response to their motion to dismiss. After that, it's out of my hands. And this whole thing now where uh, Carolyn's really, really like into this, we got to get this done. And I'm like, okay, well, you talk to the people that you know, and and, um, I'm going to just send some stuff out to other people. And and if it lands, it lands. So um, as I speak to you now, um, who knows? I mean, maybe somewhere down the road, you never know. So I would say if anyone listening to this has any connections with anyone in television or Netflix or Hollywood, whatever, and they're looking for uh, something different, let them know. Just let them know. And uh, and we'll see what happens. So right now we're at about 2.15. I had no intention of going this long. Uh, and I really edited a lot of this out, not not after recording it, like in my head, like I really didn't go through, uh, Gelman's timeline before him and I met really didn't go into too much detail about, um, the court stuff. I kind of gave you the, the, the important parts. Uh, I didn't talk about all the nice things that a lot of people did for me. And, and I generally like to talk about that too. Um, but for this, it's, it, for this, it's really just, um, clear. <sighs> I don't even want to say clear in the air because it really, while I think most people are familiar with my role in this, um, when I hear podcasts like the one that I listen to, uh, it's obvious I'm not reaching everybody and I really want to do that. But uh, also every year on the anniversary, I kind of rehash this and uh, maybe next year I'll, I'll do it again from start to finish. But um, that is uh, basically my role in this. Um, like I, uh, I said before, please, I, uh, I retweet every day, three things on Twitter. One is, um, a short, short documentary done by, um, Luke from we are change, um, about what the duty is of police, especially in New York city. And, uh, that was really the first big thing that happened to me on, uh, YouTube. I retweet that every day. I also retweet the documentary that I was discussing, uh, Killing Spree. And again, I urge you to to go and watch that, especially if you watch um, The Killer Speaks, because uh, you'll see the differences yourself. And uh, I also tweet out every day something done by Cracked Magazine. If you're uh, of a certain age, you remember Cracked Magazine. They were uh, Mad Magazine's biggest competitor. Now they do everything... Um, online no more paper magazines and they do these uh animations and um <laughs> so I, I, i'm blown away to say that their animation about what happened to me has almost nine million views it blows my mind but if you have time please go to my twitter feed at joe underscore lozito uh every morning i retweet those three things if you have time and you really want to learn more uh, those are three really good places to start. Um, also, if you have any questions, I'm always happy to answer them. You can uh, text me if you have my number. You could DM me 
on social media. I always get back to everybody. I'm more than happy to talk about it. I'm more than happy to spread the word. Um, and I just ask you people, if you don't mind, uh, you know, the stuff I, I tweet or post on Facebook or whatever about this, uh, please share it because, you know, most of the time when you tune into this show, it's, it's fun conversation with, uh, some really tough dudes. And I appreciate when everyone shares it. Uh, sometimes when you tune in, it's just me rambling on about nothing, uh, consequential, you know, but on a day like today, this is something that's pretty important to me. And, um, maybe if you could share it on all your, uh, all your accounts, you know, share the link to this episode. Uh, the more people that know, the better, um, it's 11 years later. I still feel like I haven't received any justice and I still, I still have a lot of fight left in me. So, uh, I can use all the help I can get. So if you don't mind sharing this episode, I would really appreciate that. I'd be very grateful. So, um, it's really, um, a good chunk of the story there. My, my participation in the apprehension of this piece of shit who's currently serving 225 years. I hope that he's getting fucking violated daily, uh, by, uh, by extremely endowed men with no tenderness in their love. Hopefully that happens. And, um, Hopefully one day I get the notification that he killed himself. And I know that might be tough for some of you to hear, but I got to tell you, that's what I'm hoping for. I am. I'd love to piss on his grave. And uh, I I know I'm not alone. So with that, if you liked what you heard today, uh, please consider subscribing to the show. Um, And if you have a moment, please like, rate, and review the show. It gives the show greater visibility. Um, Obviously, all the episodes are not like this. Uh, next week, I will. It will return to being a hockey enforcer show. I promise you. Um, like I said, all the episodes are not like this at all. This is sort of a uh, special circumstance. Uh, but I just want to thank everyone that uh, reached out to me over the last few days. Um, you know, it's always nice. The anniversary. You know what? Like I always say, like anniversaries, they're they're just another day. What really separates uh, February 12th from February 11th or February 13th? I mean, you're talking hours difference, but I understand. I understand what anniversaries are, but, uh, you know, to everyone who's concerned about me, I really appreciate that. But I really want everyone to know that um, I got a pretty strong uh, support system here. You know, my family's very close and um, I'm doing okay. You know, I am there. And listen, some days are tougher than others. And um, like I said, I'm still pissed because I still feel like I got to get justice for this somehow. Um, But in terms of day to day, you know, uh, like I said, in this house, I got my wife, I got my boys. Now I got the puppy. And, uh, you know, I got uh, my mom and dad and uh, my stepmom, my sister uh, my niece, yeah, my nephew, my in-laws, uh, I got a lot of people looking out for me. So, uh, I'm very fortunate, very fortunate in that respect. So, uh, for those of you that worry about me, I'm, I'm doing okay. I am, uh, I'm doing okay. Thank you for your concern. So, um, I guess it's about it for now. So, uh, as I always say until next week, you people out there, please stay safe.